0: you can be seated. Thanks guys. So today we're going to uh, embark, keep moving along basically on some of the journey that we've been on in the book of Ephesians. I don't know if you realize this, our pastor Jim would probably not say this in front of you. He is actually an Ephesians specialist He's written a book about that thick on Ephesians and uh, studied and talked with people, scholars from all over the world. So obviously, I don't have a chance, people. Give me a break up here. But um, he truly brings some amazing things to us, especially from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, John, and Hebrews were kind of his specialties uh, along his course of, of study, which is why we studied John this summer. We're doing Ephesians. I'm sure we'll go into Hebrews sometime, but he brings some amazing things. So I tried to glean from him some, some uh, nuggets before he left. Hopefully I'll be able to remember those and bring those to the equation. But this study is pretty self-applicable. I don't know if you remember this. I actually checked on this with him, and he confirmed this idea. Paul wrote typically on scrolls. Now the books became, actually Christians probably invented the idea of the book. There's a lot of, almost every scholar that has studied literary history says that the codices, the idea of a book form, was the invention of Christians so that they could get more information and they could transfer it easier and take care of it, get access to it without having to unroll a scroll all the way back out. You can imagine how that worked. But typically, Paul's writings are broken into two halves. It's like he rolled the scroll into the center. The left half, the first half of his epistles, are very theological, they're philosophical, they're teaching-oriented, they're mind. Like, what should you be thinking? The second half out here are very practical. Do this, don't do this, say this, sing this, put on, put off. That's what we're going to talk about today. So we're in the second half after Jim got us into the very beginning of chapter 4 last week. That's the break point in this book. And he spends a bunch of time in the entire overarching idea of Ephesians to be about unity. That truly is his main concept that he's teaching. He must have heard some things from the uh, churches, maybe from the individuals within the church. We don't know. Timothy spent some time in Ephesus at this church, several others. And he found out this is an issue. It may have been an issue that was broadly applicable because these letters were often passed around among many churches. So unity is the goal. Also, just so you know, as he broke into chapter 4 here... He starts with the there's one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. You remember that section. And then he says the Holy Spirit has given us gifts. This is not the charisma, the word that is for your individual gifting. It is he's given us people, apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, evangelists, that bring this and make it applicable for us. He's illustrating the idea that the Holy Spirit acts out unity through the people in front of him, as it were, through the people of the church. The whole idea of unity is people-oriented. Get this, hear this, know this. There was no sense that there's like clouds floating somewhere of unity gas that people walk through and all of a sudden, oh, we're all unified, that was perfect. Good thing we found the unity cloud to walk through. It's engagement that's intentional by people to produce unity. It's an outcome. And the Holy Spirit wants to use all of us in our individual ways to work that. Think about the idea of culture with me for a minute. Culture only makes sense if individuals start to act into it. You remember junior high, right? I mean, is junior high like the most brutal time of life? Okay, but there still is this pressure to conform to something that is a culture did, were any of you ever cool enough to start the fad? Anybody ever cool enough to start the fad? I started a really bad one. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I should tell it. Probably not. But I'll just say that there was some... Okay, he calls me on it. All right. Um, ah, forget it. So that I, <laughs> I and a couple of my friends actually influenced, and then I, you start to see this influence in a culture... Now, the the truth was not everybody thought it was a good idea, but because it became cool, then, then other people started doing it, right? There's influence. Sometimes that's positive. Sometimes that's negative. Not all peer pressure is bad. It can be really good, and it affects us. But the only way that you become a part of a culture is if you buy into a larger concept, and that brings unity. Now, it's not conformity, It's not uniformity. This is really important that you'd understand this. In fact, every time the church has ruined the idea of unity has been when they have said, you know what, we all need to do exactly the same thing, look the same way. We all need to wear green socks on Thursday. Don't eat fish. Make sure you pray two rosaries. Walk backwards past this place on Market Street. You know what I mean? As soon as we start doing all of that, it becomes monkey business. And we actually ruin the idea of unity when it's about legalism. So this is not what he's trying to expound here and get to be built into the church of Ephesians on a practical level. It isn't legalized sense of you've got to do this. But there's a new law that he'll be talking about. There's a couple things here that I want you to get before, just one more before we go in. And that is this idea that when he introduced these men and women who would bring leadership, it was an idea of a supply line. Now, the, the word started off in oldest Greek as being the money that was paid to bring a choir to a festival. Okay? Then it, the, the, the uh, commanders, the generals, picked up on this term and started to use it to say, this is the, the, the grand total of what is needed To take an army from one place and get it somewhere else, it's the supply line that goes along. Paul says that the Holy Spirit, through the people, brings the supply line for unity. That's what's going on here. We're going to pick up a couple of things in here. One of them is anger. I wanted to, every time I hear the word anger... It just makes me angry. No, every time I hear the word anger, though, I do think of my sister-in-law. Her name is Marianne Ialucci, good Polish girl. No, that's obviously very Italian. She's not only Italian, she's Catholic. She's not only Catholic, she's Jersey. So she's a Jersey Catholic Italian, right? And she says, I mean, she talks about her family. Everybody's angry in her family. She said, my grandpa was so angry when they buried him on his tombstone, it says, what are you looking at? Not really. But, you know, that sense of anger, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about humor. We're going to ask ourselves some questions because a lot of this is very practical application of ideas, much of it having to do with what comes out of our mouth and how that affects unity, this bigger picture. So if you have a Bible there or you want to reach in front of you and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 17, we're going to read this passage. If nothing else, you will have read some scripture and God could give you great things through that. Even if I just sit down and shut up, it would be really good. Ephesians four 17, we're going to read through the end of this chapter. It's near the back. It's kind of the back you can see in my Bible. It's this far towards the back. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Wow. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. I hope that doesn't define this culture. I don't think that it does. But uh, interestingly here, he says, don't live anymore as the Gentiles to. Who is Ephesians written to? Gentiles. Uh, Irony? Anybody see any? Uh, uh, We're the Gentiles. I know that. Verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to, here's the, pro, the, the pinnacle of it, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to made, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I'm going to use my things here. Put off your old self, which is corrupt. Okay? Be renewed, a retraining, a rethinking, in a period of caution, and then put on the new self. Is that fun or what? This is super fun. You'll remember that if nothing else. Oh, I'm I'm not done reading it here. Therefore, verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we're all members of one body. If you're in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of, here's the put-offs, red light, get rid of all bitterness, rage, Anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. But here's the green light. Put on, be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God in Christ forgave you. Let's unpack a little bit of this. We can't go through every piece. I encourage you, if you want to read some practical things that would be applicable for your life, read four and five. You could do it once a month. It would be well worth your time. But let's unpack a little bit of this. First of all, all the verbs in there are plural. Again, referring to the unity of the combined body, the culture, the put-offs, put-ons, do-this's, do-that's. We, of course, as Americans, immediately personalize it. I should not do this. Well, of course, that if I do this, it affects the culture. But Paul is talking to the group first. It's important to know this is a cultural discussion. The one place where he uses a singular verb, he immediately goes, yeah, but remember, we're all members of one body, and he takes it right back to the plural. And the whole thing is crafted all the way through the second half of chapter 4 on into chapter 5 until he gets down to the discussion about marriage. It's all crafted as a a cultural discussion for the whole church and all the churches that would read his book. Verse 17, the NIV says, live, live. A better word is actually walk. It carries more than just exist or survive into a way of life, a uh, identity, an identity. It's much bigger than just do this one thing. Actually, Paul uses this verb over and over. He's about the only one who does. John uses it twice, once in one of his little tiny letters, once in the book of Revelation. Other than that, Paul is the only one who uses it in the New Testament. But he uses it a bunch to describe this journey of life. It is a motion forward. It's a redefinition. Again, ironically, he refers to the Gentile thinking as being futile. uh, Doesn't have any purpose to it. And, of course, he's talking to a bunch of Gentiles. It's pretty interesting how Paul does this. Without accusing them and and putting them under the boot... In saying, you worthless Gentiles. He never does that. He says, this is going to sound familiar to you because you've been there, but I don't want you to stay there. We're moving out. And then he lists these things. Here's the red lights. Uh, These guys are darkened, he says. They're alienated. They're ignorant, hardened. They're callous. They have given up. They're greedy. They have impurity. I mean, this is tough stuff, right? These are all put-offs. The idea of ignorant is not like you don't know anything. It is you know stuff and you still make bad decisions, which is even more sad. The callous, the hardened, do you hear that? Impenetrable. You're not coming to me. You know where I see it as? I see it more as a passive sense of, hey, that's just who I am. Sorry. Nothing I can do about it. I've been that way for, yea, verily, 60 years. I'm not going to change now. Really? Hmm. There might be another option. Greedy, of course, what we all do, turn it in, is, is ma- meeting our needs. Get this, too, though, that the, the Gentiles lived in a culture with an absence of law. Now, I was talking about legalism a minute ago. Paul immediately brings up the fact that law should be a very grace-giving thing because what he says in all of these actions of these descriptions is you never found anything lively or beneficial in there anyways. The law was a benefit to you to find out what you should quit doing. Let me give you an example. Greed. I've been to Haiti. I have passed out things to people who are Desperate to survive for the next day. They're greedy, folks. They're greedy. Why? They're trying to survive. That's a different mindset to this word. But how would you understand if you were in a posture like that or a position like that, socioeconomically how would you get to the point of not being greedy anymore you would have to see a bigger picture of unity of a larger group that this affects a culture and you know what the better picture is instead of all of the individuals wanting what they want and getting just for them it's all of us taking care of all of us that's what's a much better picture The law of God brought that idea to bear, brought that truth to bear in their lives. And in fact, then he says, this is the law of Christ. It's not that same sense of a bunch of don'ts that you can't do. Dang it, isn't life miserable because I got to follow this law. It's not remotely that. It is much more beneficial like that. The truth in Jesus, the law of Christ Now, verse 22 says, put off. I want to get right to some of this so that you get these ideas in your mind. I really hope you walk out of here understanding the concept of red light, put off. I'm going to not be about that anymore. There's a change of my mind and my definition. That's a process, and my process is taking me to a put on, a new. I hope you walk out of here that today. This imagery, truly, the put off, is the idea of changing clothes. Take off, I put on. Now, I want to fix something, though, that often gets wrapped into that for us. We often think of it as putting off old, dirty, grungy garments, putting on new, clean ones. But the bad news is we all know these are going to get dirty again. Right? We all know that. You're going to really struggle with the whole definition of Christianity, if you think this is a process of taking off the old stuff and then, ta-da, I can soar over tall buildings in a single... You know, not how this works. This is better understood as a change of identity, as a change of, of, uh, of direction. Let me give you some examples. If you're a small child, there was probably a time when you... Liked certain books or maybe certain television shows like Barney or something. And then after a while, you go, you know what? That's kind of for babies. Right? That's a good change of direction. I'm not going there anymore. There's nothing, you know, that I told, I'm just going over here. If you're in middle or high school, I remember this significant change that happened every day. You're in a classroom. You're supposed to be quiet. Everybody's studying. It's all very nice and calm. Then you go down the hall, put on your football gear, go out and start beating people up, right? I was a student one minute. I changed clothes, and now I'm a monster, right? There's a significant change. This is a pretty good illustration. If you were in college and you were moving along and you were studying art history, God bless you, But you're studying that and you say, hey, I think I'm going to change majors to finance. I can actually get a job over here. Maybe that's what happened for you, right? You decide, hey, I'm going this direction. Nothing inherent, you know, but this is more appealing. This has got a better outcome. Redefinition. For adults who've had certain careers and you make a career change, maybe you were a ski patroller, and then you decide, well, that was kind of cool, it was fun, it kind of ran its course, but now I'm gonna be a surgeon. Okay, you got some work to do, but you're not gonna be the same guy anymore. You're the same human being, but you totally change your direction. Got it? Some of you have gone from being gainfully employed to being retired which I understand to be far busier than you ever were, and nobody pays you for it. That's how I understand it, watching all of you retired people. But it's a significant shift. It should be. It's a change. Actually, a really good, uh, in the Greek, it's like a once-for-all definite concluding action that's in a direction, though, that's still moving. It's ongoing. The uh, story is told of burning boats. You've probably heard this for sure of, uh, when Cortes brought his troops over from Spain and landed in Mexico. They're not sure that they actually burned the boats, but they ruined the boats. They scuttled them. Actually, I don't know if you knew this, but Cortez borrowed that from Alexander the Great did that. Took troops, took them in ships, came up into Persia, said, you know what we're doing, guys? Burning these ships to the ground. What is he communicating? We're changing directions. We're not going back there anymore. You had an old definition. You can maybe you can pine for the old. Maybe whatever. Of course you're going to experience that, but you're moving towards a different direction. It's a new identity. In verse 22, he says the old one is corrupt. The actual word is used of putrid fish or rotten fruit. Um, doesn't that sound, just smell that, smell that with me, putrid rotten fish and fruit. Doesn't that smell wonderful? This is not something that's great that you're walking away from. Paul actually, in, in 6 of Romans, uses the picture of the body of sin, which was pretty graphically, they would do this, they would take people out in the central courtyards in smaller towns. They mostly crucified, and I'm talking the Romans, But they had some horrible ways of executing people as an illustration and to produce fear. One of them, they would take people out in a courtyard, they would chain them up, they would bring a dead body and chain that dead body to their back. Now this is going to rot. Okay, everything about that is graphically just horrific. And Paul used that imagery to say that's the old Okay, this is you're not leaving something that was wonderful in the past. The description is you're leaving something that is worth and it's rotten moving forward. And here's where I'm going to bring up the idea of humor. We uh, often have to work through different things along this journey. And this is one that I just witness, I watch, and I say, huh. How much do we still drag with us from our past? How much? I'm going to show you a little video, then we're going to talk about it a little bit here.
1: If you go to Starbucks, learn their drink. Like when you go to the drive-thru, learn what they like to drink at Starbucks. It'll blow her mind. It will. Because women are, oh, that's a hard drink. They're very complicated. <laughs> Men are easy at Starbucks. You, know, you ever go to the drive-thru, can I help you? Yeah, give me a mintate coffee, no cream. Uh, honey, what do you want? Okay, here's what I want. Listen, listen, this is what I want. I want a tall, skinny, sugar-free decaf soy vanilla latte, extra hot whipped cream, double sleeve, no cup. (laughs) Please tell me you got that, please. I'd like to change my order to a large whiskey, just a large (laughs) cup of whiskey, because I'm going to drive away and off a cliff. I don't want it to hurt so bad. And a blueberry scone. (laughs) Oh, ladies, don't you moan at that. How dare you moan at that. It's not fair. Sometimes my wife gets mad at me for behaving wrong in her dreams. That ain't fair. I had a horrible dream last night. You wanna hear about it? No, I'm gonna tell you anyway. (laughs) A grizzly bear was chasing me through the woods with his teeth, he was going to eat me. And you did nothing. (laughs) You just sat there and you didn't do a thing. What was I doing? You were playing poker with a rabbit. That's what you were doing. And that's the thing, you would do something like that. You would play poker with a rabbit. Well, I was being eaten by a bear. <laughs> Luckily, a giant unicorn came and saved me <laughs> with his laser horn. That's how I say saved, not by you. <laughs> now, that's
0: pretty funny, isn't it? I grew up in the 70s with Richard Pryor and Robin Williams and Andrew Dice Clay and some pretty, you know... Isn't this significantly different? Was that funny? Why is that funny? It's funny because it's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because we relate to it. It's, It's appropriate humor because do you hear in the back of that what his first sentence was? It actually is, you should learn a little bit about your wife, which is really good advice. We laugh about it, but truthfully, the double hot, double sleeve, no cup thing, whatever would, if we did that, think of how honoring that is, right? That's a result of humor that's appropriate. The humor that's not appropriate still makes us laugh, but it kind of smells like that old rotten, doesn't it? Worth thinking about. 23, Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This recalls Romans 12 when he said... This is a process that is literally a brainwashing, a transformation, an appropriate brainwashing, a cleaning. Move away from and put on, again, this is directional, the new man. Philippians 3, Paul, remember, he says this, remembering. And Paul wrote Philippians at the very end of his ministry. But he says, here's what I do. I take my past And I put it behind me. I sounded like Timon or or Pumbaa or one of those, right? You got to take your past and put it in your behind. No, wait. But (laughs) put it behind me, right? And I moved towards my new direction. Now, do you remember who Paul was in his past? He was a systematic murderer of Christians. Guys, you can come to me and say, man, I have all this dysfunction from my none of you systematically murdered Christians. You have things in your past. I promise you it's nothing like Paul's. Promise you. Put it in the past. Walk towards the future. How do you change this direction? Let me ask you a couple of things. If you're going to change careers, what do you have to do to go to a new career? Tell me some things. School, training, that was the first thing that came up in the first. We all know that. You have to get some new training, right? What else? So what? Quit the old job. Quit the old job. Yeah, you have to put that. You literally have to give up. You can't be, serve two masters. What else do you have to do to, to change careers? You have to put together a new resume. You have to start some new pieces that actually are functional, right? What else? Say what? have Have to move. Sometimes you relocate. That's exactly true. You have to apply, which actually, have you ever thought about the verb form of that? You apply for a job. You actually put yourself in the position to be qualified for that job. What else? Yes. You have to put yourself into the culture. That often involves something like a mentor or someone to be along in the journey. Right? So, this process of changing, you know how to do this. You know how to do it. It's not foreign to you. It isn't something that is like, I mean, I hear people say this. They're like, oh, you know, just Christianity is this just too hard. I don't want to give up the stuff, or I just can't. I can't put that in my. Yes, you can. You know how to do this. You can't do it. Like that. It isn't as simple. <laughs> Boy, do I wish it was. It isn't as simple as that and that, and now you're done. There's a lot more of this in the middle of the training. And in fact, it's an ongoing going. It's an ongoing new direction. The training never quits. You've got to learn some ways to apply this. You've got to learn some, find some people that have succeeded at it. I was a manager for a while at a Home Depot. We would send people in the back to watch the training videos. They would come out on the floor, look a customer in the eye, and not have any idea what to say. (laughs) Right? Why? Because they haven't actually, real time, real life, real people, learned how to apply it. You can't just read the Bible in your bedroom, walk out, and go, ta-da, it doesn't work that way. It's a process that involves this whole thing. In fact, Remember, this is a community thing. Unity is a sense of everybody doing this together. We all have our eyes on each other to help move everybody along. We get it, dude. We know where you've been. That's no sweat. We've all been. We've all been. Now we're going here. Come on. Come with. This is better. This is better. A couple of practical examples. Put off falsehood and put on truth. Green light, red light, or vice versa. Simple. Just don't speak things trying to manipulate. Change the truth. Change the story. The idea in the anger idea that we're coming up to here, the Greek had this idea of actually their word was akatharsos. You hear cathartic or catharsis, which is a sense of you just vent. You just let it, let it out. That alone is not enough. It's better to do something to let it out than to just plug it and stick it in the corner. I'll give you that. But just venting and then wash, rinse, repeat, doing the same thing again over and over and over. Venting, venting, venting is not helping. It's not a motion in a new direction put off put on then he says this be angry that anger form is an affirmed anger the greek has a lot of words like this that they can have a positive or a negative meaning the same word for trial is the same word for testing or temptation it's the same word temptation has the outcome of a failure the enemy uses that against us to produce failure a trial or a test in the hands of God is because he literally knows we have what it takes to do it and the outcome that he prefers and wants is a is a win, right? Anger is a word that has both sides of the coin, positive and negative. It can be both and. It is not inherently evil. Anger gives you that chance in the anger to do something. Of course, righteous anger is all righteous indignation is always the stuff that we have. And the false and evil kind is the kind the other guy has, right? It's always that way. But truthfully, the, and the idea of never go to bed angry, um, you know, don't let the sun set, is a timing issue. It is not specifically for your husband and wife's scenario. Like, don't literally go to bed. Um, I know somebody who believes in that. And he says, well, I never go to bed angry. That's because every time my wife sends me to the couch. But, you know, I don't know what your circumstance is. But the truth is, this is a motion of time that says, let's get this taken care of. Why is it legit to be angry? In fact, if you tie this down to the last or the second to the last verse that says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit be upset about something? You know why? Because he would be included in something that is divisional disunity in the body. That would bother him and make him angry. And it should bother and make you angry. It should. Disunity should be something that you say, we're not going to tolerate this. Sit around and wait. Something, some right direction needs to be taken. That's what the do not go to bed angry Don't steal, he says, but get a job and do something that you can give to others. Have you thought about it this way? Stealing is pretty clearly, I do something wrong on my taxes and I know it. Or I go into Walmart and I pick something up, put it in my pocket and walk out. You all know that. I doubt very many of us do that. However... When he takes this to the next step of getting a productive job, then so that you may be able to share with others. Have you ever thought about this? If God's great economy is, he's providing enough for you to have and to pass on to someone else. Have you ever realized the fact that if you do not pass that on, if you hoard it, it's stealing? That's what this verse means. It means don't just quit stealing your neighbor's stuff. But you should even be aware enough to be raised. This is the new direction. Raised up out of hoarding to caring for each other. Again, community unity. No corrupt word should come out of your mouth. And he actually uses this little phrase, fitting. Brian McLaren has a great example of this, where he's talking about a a doctor An oncologist who's faced with telling a patient about the fact that they have cancer. Now, how many of you have had a doctor who is insensitive, a clod, and just told you, you've got cancer? Have any of us had that? Uh, Several people raised their hands in the first service. Maybe you've not experienced that. I'm glad. Sometimes doctors, they have the information. They're very clinical. They just say, blah. Seriously? Could you not say that same truthful information in such a way that it was fitting to the circumstance? To where it would actually, as he says here, build the other one up with that information. That's really what this is talking about. Not just having the cold hard facts, but passing them on in such a way that it builds each other up. And then he has this long list of red lights Put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. I love that word. It just sounds noisy. (laughs) Clamor, slander, malice. I mean, this is not a pretty list. But it all goes back to very much of this comes out of bitterness and goes forward. If you look at it, you could see that many of those are outcomes from bitterness and improper anger. And they're almost all related to the use of this. Almost all, but be kind. Here's the green lights. <laughs> the last use: be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving. You remember in the in the callous, the first list of thinking like a, a gentile: callousness, hardness, not forgiving, self-centeredness, rather than turning out. You hear the contrast? There's a very clear bracket in Paul's mind as he looks at these. I just want you to to hear this. As you review these passages, as Paul gets very practical and goes beyond just the thinking of Christianity, he says to each one of you, you have the capacity to turn around from that and go towards the new. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't say to them, you guys on a scale of 1 to 10 are about a 3, and by the time I get there, you better be a 5, or I'm shutting that church down and we're getting a new one in Ephesus. He doesn't do that. He says this is the capacity that you have. Why? Because of the supply line of the Holy Spirit to build us all towards a culture of unity, not disunity, watching our mouth how we use things like anger, humor, other things in our lives. Guys, you have the capacity to do this. You have what it takes. Be encouraged. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the the truths. Thank you for the words from the uh, Apostle Paul who so well captured this. Help us to evaluate, to remember the things that we should put off and just move away from those without a sense of shame, judgment, and all that and move towards the new because that's where we want to go. Help us to invest, do the things we have to do. We have the capacity. Give us the supply line from the Holy Spirit to be aware, to believe, to be true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.